Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. A Midnight Clear by William Wharton. Chapter 2. The Longest Night. It snowed during the night, but lightly. Temperatures dropped at least 10 degrees. The first snow fell in the Saar for my 19th birthday. I was on a full-day artillery observation post with the squad 20-power scope. I'd spent the morning peering through drifting whiteness, trying to keep from breathing on the lenses. It was beautiful, even the black blossoms of mortar. They were far enough away. I'd pick a spot and wait till it happened. You can do this when you get to know the patterns. Now, when I look at the Bruegels in Vienna, I remember my 19th birthday. Here, this morning, going out, there are frozen leaves and pine cones on the ground when we pass through K Company and drive into the forest. The road's just two hard ruts. The light, new snow's blown into them. No sign of other traffic. Rough riding. Slippery. Cold. Miller's driving our jeep. Wilkins and I, in back, take turns on the 50 caliber. I'm up. It's miserably cold sitting there in the icy wind. As we go deeper into the forest, huge pines loom dark on both sides. Some light is coming into the sky. We drive along, not saying much. Absolutely beautiful sniper targets. Gordon's driving the other jeep with Father Mundy and Schutzer. I look back to see if they're still with us. Wilkins taps me and I slide down. He uses the handhold to climb up and crouch behind the sights. Wilkins looks scared, but we're all looking scared most of the time. We haven't said anything about our cross-country jaunt through the woods. Maybe it's because we can't figure out who won. Wilkins is acting as if it didn't happen. That's okay. Just thinking about something like that scares me. Mother has a piece of blanket cut into a long scarf. He's tucked it in under his helmet like a burnus, then wrapped it around his neck and stuffed it inside his field jacket. It gives him a sad Lawrence of Arabia look. Thank God Sergeant Hunt isn't around for this. Mother's glasses have slipped to the end of his nose. I'm not sure if you can actually see anything through those sights, anyway. His nose is long, bright red against his face, but he looks all right. Maybe it was only a bad moment. Something to forget. I tell you, Want, I feel exactly like a target being towed across a firing range. Don't sweat it, Mother. Pretend we're going for a winter Christmas stay at the family chateau. Imagine yourself a member of the old European elite. I look ahead, over Miller's shoulder. The road's tough, twisting, narrow. We're winding along switchbacks now, working our way deeper into the forest. I'm just checking the map again to see if we're on the right road, going the right way, when the world seems to explode. The jeep jumps up so only Miller could have kept it from turning over. I think at first we've hit a mine, but then realise it's Mother firing off a long burst. He's shooting past Miller's left ear at something on that side of the road, so the jeep's reared up on its two right wheels. I'm already clambering out before it gets settled back on four. Miller cuts the motor, grabs his M1 and dives, crawling under the jeep. Half our junk we'd piled in back, behind the gun, is spread along the road. I'm hunched in the middle of it. Jumping out, I banged a knee on that damned handhold and my stupid mind is more wrapped around this pain than on keeping me alive. Wilkins is still up behind the gun. He's not firing, but continues sighting down the barrel. I can barely get my voice together for a whisper. I've crept behind the right rear wheel, away from the direction Mother fired. What is it, Wilkins? What do you see? There's a moment before he answers. He stands up from his crouch behind the gun. He pushes his glasses farther up his nose and leans forward. There was a German standing behind a tree, 
There. I think I got him. He's lying on the ground. I don't see any others. You're sure? Mother? And you can still see him? Mother takes off his glasses, wipes the lenses with the leather fronts of his wool-knit gloves and peers again. Yeah, he's there. You can see him yourself if you stand up. This is not the kind of thing anybody who likes being alive does. But if it's an ambush, why aren't they shooting Mother off the jeep? Bolstered by this slight bit of hasty logic, I scurry into trees beside the road. I look back and see that everyone's dispersed from the other jeep. The motor back there is still running. God, I'm scared. I'm expecting the brrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrr
Schutzer and Gordon are leaning against it. Melvin Gordon is squad health nut. He intends to become a doctor if he lives through the war. He actually does, both those things. He's taken on the personal responsibility, unasked, for the state of our bodies. Monday works on our souls. In today's terms, I guess mothers are ecologist, millers are mechanic and poet. I'm the artist and Schutzer's our business manager. Gordon has gotten all of us who smoke to stop, at least in front of him. It can be an enormous nuisance. Miller resists Gordon most, the way Schutzer resists Mundy. About then, Father Mundy comes dashing from the forest at half-mast. He still has the toilet paper in one hand, flapping along after him, and he's holding onto the belt of his pants with the other. His rifle has slipped down to the crook of his elbow, so it's swung in front and is thumping against his knees with every step. Mother of God, save me! He looks back over his shoulder. He feels for his head with his toilet paper hand and realises he doesn't have his helmet. He stops dead in his tracks. No, Lord, don't make me go back. Father Mundy's trying to buckle and put himself together. He keeps tangling in the toilet paper. We've all sprawled in the snow again, except Wilkins, who's swung that fifty calibre so it's aimed just over Father's head. What in the name of heaven is it, Mundy? Mundy shambles over and flops beside me. He's about 6'3 and better than 200 pounds, on the edge of being soft. His usually white skin is even whiter, and his Irish upper lip is covered with beads of sweat, quivering. You won't believe it, Want. The rest of the squad has scrambled, sprinted or crawled over to us. Maybe nobody could ever lead this bunch of gregarious genii. The trouble is, they always want to know. Wilkins leans down from beside the gun. What was it, Mundy? What's in there? Is there a German patrol? It's okay, Vance. Only I wasn't expecting it. I don't know what's going on, but you all ought to go look. I'm not exactly sure what I saw. I was so scared I took off without looking much. Schutzer pushes himself up, wiping the frost and dirt from his knees and elbows. What do you see, father? A little grotto with a mysterious light coming out of it and this lady dressed all in shining blue and white who talked to you? Come on, tell us. Mandy gives Schutzer one of his forgive-them-father looks. Okay, wise guy, what would you think of a German and an American soldier dancing together in the woods there, without music yet? Schutzer's climbing up to take Wilkins' place behind the fifty calibre. He should really be squad leader. That's the kind of thing you're supposed to think of. He slips into place while Mother Wilkins lets himself slide off the side of the jeep. He must be frozen. Gordon shakes some snow out of his glove. What's this? Father Mundy bucking for Section 8. Well, fan my jawbone. A little counselling might help, Father. My office hours are two till five. I think I can squeeze you in. It's time to play, Sergeant. OK, Mundy, let's see whatever it is. Schutzer, you stay here and cover. Miller, you give us crossfire from behind the other jeep. I figure Miller can get his smoking up there while we're gone. We start into the woods, rifles at the ready. We get to the spot. Mundy picks up his helmet and points to the left. I'm almost ready to believe anything, but I have a hard time with this. They look like a statue. They've been standing long enough, so the last snows have sprinkled helmets and shoulders like powdered sugar. We advance slowly, Gordon in the lead. Somebody's propped an American and a German soldier against each other in the final of final embraces. Their arms and legs are cocked so they look like waltzers or ice skaters about to move off into some intricate figure. I stop. I don't want to look. Mundy and Gordon go on with Mother behind them. Then Mother turns around and comes back. I don't understand, Want. What's going on? Who's standing up these corpses? It's crazy. This whole war's gone off the track somehow. I shake my head. I'm afraid if I talk, I'll start bawling. It's not so much I'm scared, more confused, disgusted discouraged. I stand there, rifle at the ready, pretending I'm doing something military, while Mundy and Gordon untangle the bodies and lower them to the ground. 
Mundy does his airsat's extreme unction thing. Gordon hovering over the bodies. I have time to pull myself together. Gordon and Mundy come back and we move toward the jeeps without saying anything. Even for a bunch of self-proclaimed smartasses with a wisecrack for almost anything. There isn't much to say. Schutzer and Miller won't believe it when we tell them. They've got to go in and see for themselves. We tell them they aren't dancing anymore. How Mundy and Gordon let them down, but they want to check. Faith is going out of style, even in our squad, despite Mundy's heroic last-ditch efforts. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. We get the rations, grenades, camouflage suits and other junk, including 12 mini chess sets, packed tight in the jeep. Mother climbs in with me behind the 50. Gordon starts the other jeep and rolls close behind ours. When Schutzer and Miller come back, Schutzer's like a lunatic. Those filthy, Nazi, kraut-headed, super-Aryan motherfucking bastards. Only pigs wouldn't even think of a thing like that. That whole goddamn country doesn't deserve to live with human beings. We should shove them in their gas ovens and wipe them all out. I personally would be glad to supervise the entire operation. And don't give me any crap, Mundy. You tell me why anybody do something like that to anybody else. What kind of God lets things like that happen? Mundy's sitting in the other jeep. He's quiet. Then he looks at Schutzer climbing in beside him. Yes, it's a terrible thing, Stan. A horrible way to treat the temple of the Holy Ghost, even if the immortal soul is departed. But we don't know for sure the Germans did that. Miller turns over our jeep and guns the motor, so I just pick up what Schutzer says. For Christ's sake, who else, Mundy? Gremlins? We go along slowly, twisting, turning, up and down hills, around cuts in mountains, under snow-covered trees. I stay behind the fifty, head ducked tight into my shoulders, trying to follow on the map where we're going. 
It's a small sector map of the one Love had, a contour job an inch to a thousand feet, so it should be reasonably accurate, but we're making more twists and turns than are shown. What's the mileage, bud? He looks down at the odometer. We've come about six and two-tenths so far since K Company. We go through a narrow defile, and suddenly there's a bridge over a small stream, the bridge I've been looking for, the one we're supposed to watch. Up a steep road from this bridge is the chateau. I mean, it's really a chateau, not just a fancy house. It isn't all that big, but this is something from a French fairy tale. Miller glides to a stop. I hand signal back to Gordon. We turn off both motors and listen. It's quiet except for winter birds running water and the sound of wind through pines. Slopes of forest come down behind, close to the chateau. Looking at the bridge, I can see there's no vehicle or foot traffic marks. It appears the place really might be deserted. We scramble out of our jeeps. Gordon takes the scope and inches forward to a tree nearest the chateau, with a good view and some cover. He leans the scope against this tree and scans everything for maybe five minutes. Nobody's saying anything. All of us are staring at that chateau. It's built in pinkish-grey stone with a blue-grey slate roof and white shutters. All the shutters are closed. It's three stories tall and has a mansard roof. It doesn't look real. Gordon comes back. I don't see anything, Want No smoke, no movement, no trucks. The windows and doors are all closed. There are no vehicles and no smells. What do you think, Mel? Send in a two-man patrol or just charge up that hill with the jeeps? I thought Schutzer and I could ford the creek downstream a ways and approach from that side. We can look around back, then come on down the road in front of the bridge and check for mines. How's that sound? We'll spread out and cover for you. If Mel hadn't gotten trench foot in the mud at Metz, he'd sure as hell be squad leader, and that's the way it should be. Or maybe he'd be dead. He and Schutzer start down through the trees. I pass the word for everybody to spread out and be ready to give covering fire if they need it. I slide down to Gordon's tree, where there's a good field of fire. I watch as they ford the narrow stream on some rocks. Schutzer slips and dunks one foot up over his boot top. They clamber uphill on the chateau's left, keeping the hill between themselves and the windows. It's like watching a war or cowboy movie. Actually, more a cowboy movie, with the good guys sneaking up on the shack where the cavalry colonel's beautiful blonde daughter, in total décolletage, is being held by a bunch of wild-eyed bandits who sweat a lot, wear black hats and two-day beards. Then they disappear. I figure they're behind the chateau. I wait. Waiting is 99% of soldiering. Sometimes it's only waiting for chow. Sometimes it's waiting like this. But definitely, too much waiting. Then Schutzer comes around the other side of the chateau. He leans forward and peers through one of the shutters. Gordon slinks along behind him and is swinging his head back and forth like some bird dog trying to pick up a scent. Gordon and Fred Brandt both claimed they had the best schnozolas in the world. They insisted they could pick up smells other people don't even dream about. Once at Shelby, out on the firing range, we had a smelling contest using a pair of Jim Freeze's socks as bait. Freeze could stink up a pair of socks in two days, so they stood by themselves. His feet were like a dog's tongue. It was the only part of him that sweated, and some sweat. It was a treasure hunt. I went into the woods and hid a pair of Jim's socks, then Gordon and Brandt had to search them out by scent alone. Both of them were remarkable. They'd find those socks faster than it took me to hide them. Fred won in a best of ten series, but it was close. I think the difference was mostly a matter of luck with the wind. Now Mel has it to himself. We called him Mel the Smell for a while there. But he objected to the double meaning. Actually, Mel's on the neat side, not in a class with Wilkins, but way ahead of me on most of the squad, even Morrie. Gordon and Schutzer start down the hill. They both take a side and appearing carefully at the steep road. 
Once Schutzer leans and carefully scratches at a spot with the tip of his bayonet. They cross the bridge, then the road on our side of the bridge, and come up toward us. I step out from behind my tree. How'd it go? Schutzer sits on the ground beside me. Nobody home. Looks like nobody's been there for a while either. Gordon hands me back the scope. I should have asked for it before they left. Chalk off another two points. Can't see what's inside. There are curtains or drapes inside the shutters. I check the doors and there's no signs of booby traps. It looks as if we've got ourselves a chateau. Of course, everybody's dribbled in from the spots I put them and are gathered around. Schutz has pulled off his boot and is wringing out his sock. Well, it isn't the good old University of Florida, with 1,500 acres of orange trees growing under Spanish moss-covered oaks around an Olympic-sized swimming pool, but it's a step in the right direction, I'll say that. When Schutzer gets his boot back on, we climb into the jeeps and roll uphill to the chateau. No mines, no machine gun bursts, no snipers. Nothing. We force a front shutter and window with a bayonet. It's a French window door, and as Gordon predicted, no booby trap. We sidle in the door and stand just inside, letting our eyes get used to the dark after all the glare outside. My God, what a room. It looks like a ballroom or a very fancy small gym. There are parquet floors, and on one end is a gigantic fireplace, big enough to walk into. Long, golden damask curtains go from floor to ceiling over the windows. The windows must be 15 feet high. Everybody files in, so we're all standing there staring. None of us has ever seen anything like this before, and what makes it so eerie is there isn't one piece of furniture in the room. I know it's time to play sergeant again. Somebody has to. We need to unload all the rations and crap from the jeeps and set ourselves up. But we only stand there, overwhelmed. I'm definitely feeling like Cinderella, who was not invited to the prince's ball. I feel very disinvited. Schutzer's the first one who moves. He sashays out to the centre of the floor. Schutzer's about five six, round but not fat. He's loaded down with all the military furbelows, bulging field jacket, two bandoliers around his neck, ammo belt filled with M1 cartridges, bayonet, aid kit and canteen. He wears camouflage netting over his helmet, the only one in the squad. Gordon says it makes Schutzer look like an escapee from the South Pacific. Schutzer claims he wears it so he'll recognise his hat. Helmets are too much all alike. Schutzer's OD pants are stiff with greasy dirt. We're all the same, even Wilkins. There's no way to wash them and no others to change into. The wool soaks up grease and gets darker until the fronts are stiff and almost black. Schutzer steps out onto the floor and gazes around. Then he starts singing, grunting, humming, the jersey bounce, and breaks into a jitterbug routine by himself in the middle of that huge room. They call it the jersey bounce, the rhythm that really counts. The temperature always mounts whenever they play. Come on, Mel, let's show them how we did it at the old USO. Gordon comes out, rifle slung on his shoulder. He starts dancing with Schutzer. The two of them, bayonets clanking, canteens bouncing, bandoliers swinging, try some of the classic hand-overhead jitterbug manoeuvres, but their rifles get in the way. I watch those crazies, working it out in the middle of the Ardennes, and I remember Shelby. In those last days, when we finally believed they really were going to ship the 80th Division overseas, we went into a mild state of panic. Schutzer insisted this was proof that, despite all the propaganda, we were losing the war. Sending this outfit to fight anybody must be a desperate last resort. But the thing bothering us most is that in our squad, with the exception of Wilkins, we're all virgins, eleven unwilling, unready-to-die virgins. 
I don't know if all this virginity was a normal factor of the times or if there's some negative correlation between sexual precocity and what we call intelligence. Maybe it was only an accident of space and time. Who knows? We'd spend evenings trying to coax details out of Wilkins. His wife was in town, and he'd do anything to make sure he got his weekend pass. If his KP or guard duty happened to fall on a Saturday or Sunday, we were all willing to jump in and sub for him a vicarious pleasure. None of us ever met Linda, but we all knew her, in a sick, sex-hungry, biblical sense. We all knew her. Of course, Mother was very reluctant. He wasn't about to satisfy our puerile salaciousness. To all our entreaties, questions about how often and how much, his only reply was a sly smile and bashful, Oh, it isn't like that at all. Or, you guys are sex maniacs. So, it got to be less than three weeks before shipping out. I think it was Mori who came up with the idea, or maybe it was Schutzer. Four of us managed a weekend pass and headed into town to hunt a nice, complacent whore who could put us out of our misery, initiate us into the rights of manhood, emancipate us from the lonely compassion of our five-fingered widows. Altogether, we had fifty dollars. Ten was for a room at the Jefferson Hotel. This was for two, but we knew a back way to sneak in the others. It was Gordon, Schutzer, Murray and I. We figured any more would be some kind of gangbang, and we had more romantic aspirations. The rest of our money was to go into the investment and a bottle of bourbon. Forty dollars was a lot of money in those days. There was much speculation and discussion on the kind of woman. I think each of us was scared we'd get involved with a real woman and wouldn't be able to manage it. We agreed pure chance, not game skills, would decide the pecker order, so we matched coins. Mori won, should second, me for sloppy thirds, and Gordon on the tail end. Think of that, a quadruple pun. We settled into the hotel. Gordon and Schutzer had been nominated for the search, the recon part. We knew better than to hustle girls at the USO. We'd all tried that at one time or another, but the forces of morality were greater than our tactical skills. The B-girls in the bars were generally too much for us. None of us could make the grade with the genuine soldier town whore, and none of us was willing to get a case of clap or sif. We were well conditioned by the US Army VD films. These films of festering mouth and cocksaws were usually shown just before chow. Thank God they were in black and white. Mori was convinced they showed them when the quartermasters were running short on chow allotment. Jim Freeze insisted it was only a priori population control. The war was, by common consent, ex post facto birth control. Probably what we wanted was some girl who would resemble the girl we took or wished to be taken to our high school prom. Mori and I knew we could never make any kind of approach under any conditions. I personally had decided to sacrifice my contribution to the cause if it looked impossible. I don't know what I actually thought could bring together my absurd romantic notions with what seemed then my pressing physical demand. Gordon and Schutzer left the hotel all slicked up. They were wearing fresh underwear, had rubbed in enough mum to make a smeary mess in their armpit hairs, splashed themselves with aftershave lotion. It was early summer and muggy hot in Mississippi. Maury and I had decided to enjoy the privacy of the room. We each had a book from the post-library. We stripped to our skivvies and jumped into the beds. We luxuriated in the quiet. It was accented by the sound of a huge, long-bladed wooden fan hung from the ceiling, rotating slowly. In turn and on schedule, we took baths, timing ourselves as the water heater recuperated. It was a fine evening, and a great contrast to the streets outside roiling with other soldiers, MPs on the prowl and glaring townspeople. The feeling of civilians in Shelby seemed to be, what the hell are you doing here when you should be out there fighting Nazis and Japs? It's past midnight when Schutzer and Gordon come back. I'm asleep. I'm sure Murray is too. 
After the baths and the quiet reading, I'm not even nervous anymore. I'm convinced Schutzer and Gordon aren't going to find anybody anyway. But they have. I sneak into the room and a young girl comes in with them. I can't believe it. I sit up in bed and look over at Morrie. He's sitting up too, his OD undershirt, dark olive drab against the sheets. The girl fulfills my wildest dreams. She can't be much more than twenty, and she's beautiful. Schutzer and Gordon are giggling nervously. It must have been some fun smuggling this girl through town and up these hotel back stairs at this time of night. After the last bus has gone back to camp, the whole area swarms with MPs. The girl's standing just inside the door, smiling at us. I know right then I won't be able to go through with it. I'm glad I'm third down the line. It doesn't seem possible. It's happening, but it is. It's about here I realise Schutzer and Gordon have been drinking, probably trying to boost their flagging nerve. Gordon has a bottle in a paper bag. It turns out our bottle of bourbon is almost a third down already. None of us is much at drinking. In fact, we class drinking, along with cussing, as army pseudo-heroics to be avoided. With nothing said, I slip from my bed. I'm embarrassed wearing only GI underwear, large unbuttoned slit in front like the back of a hospital gown. I scurry into the bathroom. Gordon and Schutz are coming after me. Schutz has picked up the pillows from one bed on his way in. He locks the door behind him. We might as well make ourselves comfortable. Never know how long a guy like Morrie's going to take. Schutz is playing big shot, but his hands are shaking and he's sweat through his suntans under the arms and in the small of his back. Gordon sits on the toilet with the seat down. He slides one pillow under him. I climb into the bathtub and tuck a pillow behind my neck. The tub's ice cold and hard. I get out and start filling it. Who knows when I'll have a real bathtub to use again. Besides, if I'm going to be awake at one o'clock in the morning, might as well be doing something. I finished my book. Schutzer looks at his watch, pulls out a cigar and tries to light up. Gordon glances at him disgustedly. Schutzer starts undoing the buttons on his shirt. You know, she says she's doing this for nothing. Anything for the boys overseas, or almost overseas anyhow. He pulls off his sweaty shirt. Want, you wouldn't believe it. We went into every bar and joint, up and down every creepy dark street, arguing all the way. When we'd finally agree on one, the price would be something astronomical like 20 bucks a throw. No cut rate for groups. He drops his shirt on the floor and looks into the mirror over the sink. He squeezes a pimple under his ear. He tries to light his cigar again. He doesn't even know enough about cigars to trim it. You mind getting off the toilet for a minute, Gordon? I gotta take a piss. Mel stands with his pillow clutched against his chest. Schutzer lifts the lid, pulls out but can't do anything. He stands there looking down, puffing on his uncut cigar, trying to keep it lit. We're quiet. We can hear Morrie and the girl talking in the other room, but can't hear what they're saying. Schutzer buttons up and looks at his watch again. He undoes his pants and slips them off. Might as well be ready. Never know how long old Morrie Margolis is going to take. Might come right off without knowing it. No sense wasting time. He sniffs his armpits, then takes some aftershave lotion from his toilet kit and rubs it in. I try the water in my tub. Too hot. I turn on some cold. We just bought the bourbon and had almost given up when we found this girl. We were all the way down by the Greyhound depot. She was in there sitting on one of the wooden benches. Gordon here goes over and starts talking to her. Before we know it, we're telling her about how we've been doing all night, how we're looking for a whore to defoliate four overripe virgins. We're laughing, and then right there, out of the blue, she volunteers to come back with us. God, you never know. I thought she was kidding, but she's serious, and it isn't costing us a dime. Gordon sits down on the toilet seat again. The tub's full to overflow, so I turn off the water, ease myself in. Stan, I have a rubber and a pro kit you can use if you want. I have my own. Don't worry me, want... You're getting as bad as Wilkins. He searches the pack out of his pants on the floor. I'm glad I said it. Schutzer starts pacing. That is, if you can really pace in a hotel bathroom with two other people. 
He's wearing his shoes, socks and underwear. The cigar's clenched in his teeth and he's clutching a packet of three rubbers in one hand. He's balanced his pro kit on the edge of the sink. He looks at his watch. Should have known Margalis would take forever. Ever try one of those pros, Stan? I did once, just as an experiment. It doesn't hurt, but feels peculiar. Like rubber snakes squeezing up the end of your prick. Just relax. Don't worry, I'll figure it. What the fuck could they be doing in there? Watch your language, Stan. We have gentlemen in the gents' room. What would Father Mundy think? Fuck Father Mundy. Gordon shakes his head. Puts my pillow on his lap again with his own and lowers his head onto it. Schutzer looks at his watch again. He leans against the door to the bedroom. Hey, Maury, how's it going in there, huh? No answer. Schutzer puts his ear against the door. Maybe she uh, rolled him and slipped out. Knockout drops or a blackjack. Could be anything. Schutzer knocks on the door. First soft, then hard. Hey, Margolis. Give us other guys a chance, huh? At least say something. Still nothing. Schutzer slowly, quietly unlocks, then opens the door, peeks, goes in. He closes the door behind him. I stand up in the tub and dry myself off. Schutzer doesn't come back. Gordon and I look at each other. I slip on my skivvies and we go in after Schutzer. The three of them are sitting cross-legged on the bed. Schutzer and Mori are still dressed, that is, if army OD underwear can be classified as dressed. Girls in a slip and crying. Gordon and I stand at the edge of the bed and listen. I'll give a quick version of the story. It's not what this book's about anyway. Or maybe it is. Her name is Janice. She was engaged to a boy named Matt. Matt was killed in the Sicilian invasion. Janice only heard a week ago. She came down to see all the last places Matt had been in his short military life. She's a junior at Penn State, but isn't going back to school. She's 20. She came down here to kill herself, but didn't have enough nerve. All she had now is a ticket back on the bus. So, what do you believe? She and Maury got to talking because they were embarrassed. They began kissing, and she was crying. And that's how it came out. We wind up pushing the beds together into one big bed and start drinking the rest of our bourbon in the paper bag. Five people on two-thirds of a fifth. There might be some mathematical sense there, but it would be the only logical part of that night. It was like an X-rated version of the classic unmade war film starring Shirley Temple with Audie Murphy. Janice had only made love with one person, Matt, just before he left. Now she's volunteering herself to all of us. She's insisting it's what she wants to do. Of course, this brings out the contemplative, cantankerous, contentious ASTPR in each of us. We're also guilty, scared. This idea, this simple, lovely idea, must be subjected to every kind of spurious rationale. We wind down before dawn and sleep, tired, medium drunk, intimately wedded in our double-double bed. As the springing light of the new day grays the room, Janice comes quietly, privately, half in our dreams to each of us. Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny. We cry and giggle, passing through the mythical barrier between boys and men. Men and death. Janice takes us with her. At ten o'clock, after a luxurious mass breakfast in bed, Mel escorts Janice to the bus station. We don't talk about what happened. I don't think any of us can put it together with anything we've known. I personally have always had an eerie feeling about my first sexual experience, masquerading as a dead boy named Matt. And I still, to this day, have the lingering sensation that any woman with whom I make love has some other ideal person in her heart and mind. Once more we're up against my weakness for the true but unbelievable. Mel and Janice correspond through the war. Mel goes back home and they marry. They have three children and are divorced after 15 years. Perhaps because it was a mixed marriage or maybe only an ordinary marriage 
subject to the pressures of our times. Perhaps Matt could always have been there.